Welcome to the Hotel Analyst podcast, where each week we pick up on three topics that have caught our eye from the news in the hotel space around aspects of hotel investment or investment in hotel-like properties, other buildings with beds or with an operational real estate need. My name is Chris Bound, the editor at Hotel Analyst, and I'm joined on the podcast by Andrew Sankster, the editorial director at Hotel Analyst. This week, the first of the topics we're going to talk about is actually buildings without beds in, but uh, it's flexible offices. Uh, these are buildings that require an awful lot of operational real estate expertise to get just right. Uh, and we've been taking a bit of a look at what's going on in the market this week, despite the demise of WeWork or perhaps the uh, the bridling back of their aspirations. Um, it still seems a very hot topic, a very hot area. There's takeovers. There's there's plenty of companies uh, wanting to get into specifically into the London market, which seems the most active globally at the moment in terms of uh, flexible workspace. They're uh, they're looking to take over existing brands. They're looking to launch and, and buy up new space. And also we've got the traditional office landlords wondering whether and how they should be getting into this space a bit more actively themselves. Andrew, what uh, particularly struck you about the, the look we had at, uh, at this particular market niche? Yeah, well, it has been somewhat overshadowed by the failed IPO of We Company, as um, Adam Neumann, the previous CEO, styled it. Um, but I, th- I think, in many ways, it's been unfairly lambasted. I, there is, there was a major problem with the WeWork business model, and it was the classic one um, in terms of they they'd been buying in long and selling short, and that, you know if their exposure there is just too big and any sort of cycle turn is just going to do for them and I think investors quite rightly looked at it and said look no thanks this is this is not going to work for us well as as indeed uh, Regis got similarly caught out on a previous market downturn didn't they yeah they did but I mean you know to be fair to Regis that you know I don't think anybody had ever talked about them having a um a market cap in the sort of no. tens of billions actually no no so, no, no um so i think i think the uh, we work ipo or we company ipo was um at its height was 47 billion it was gradually chipped away at and then they had to pull it all together i think the market cap of iwg i had a look is just under four billion pounds currently uh, but it's a very solid business it's making money mm. it's, it, it's good and it's, it's got some in, you know that they have the regis and they have the spaces brands um and actually, um, I, I looked at some numbers CBRE put out, and they are now the number one flex office player in the US. Complete. So we've had falling off a cliff of the space that WeWork had been taken. So it's a ninety-seven percent drop, I think CBRE reckoned um, for the this uh, the last quarter of twenty nineteen against the, the the previous run rate. So it's a huge falling off. I think they uh, CBRE said. We worked signed only four leases in the final quarter of 2019, mm. so massive cutback. And um, IWG have been consistently growing in the, during that period. And there's a bunch of others who are, you know, we've had Notel speak at our hotel alternatives in the past. And although there's been a, uh, there was a little bit of a media. Um, um, attack on them i think they've got a fundamentally solid business model which which you know we're going to see and hear more of i mean they've got to be careful that with this idea in terms of how they're exposed if they start taking on these um, long leases and then selling you know short um, all these 
models have to be very careful about that and how how you do that um there was some interesting i also dug up some other research at a a thing called desk mag um and they do a global co-working survey and back in 2017 they reckoned less than 40 percent of co-working centers globally were profitable you know two years later the one that came out for 2019 43 <laughs> percent so we're still at the stage where you know 60 percent almost is unprofitable or or best breaking even so not a great situation but i think you have to dig deeper into it and start working out why it is that some of these things aren't making money mm. and um if they're big enough, if they've got 200 plus members, if they're older than one year, and if they're not being subsidised through another business operation, um, there's a 90% chance that they're going to be actually making money. And I think that that's what's interesting there is in terms of the, the scale piece is necessary to, to drive that forward. Um, but uh, you know, again, what's attracting us here is this hotelization bit, this space as a service piece, um, and we're seeing the hoteliers come into this. Both hotel companies taking a look at it, and also hotel or hospitality sector professionals coming in and starting working for them. Of the hotel companies, I suppose the biggest splash has been Accor's uh, move with Wojo. The, the half ownership of Wojo uh, we're still to see I mean I think that's very very ambitious what they were talking about there in terms of being the biggest uh, co-working um, outfit in Europe by so 2023 something like that yeah I mean, um, growing, growing in France at the moment but yet to break out of uh, really uh, the French French boundaries just yet yeah. yeah, and I, I think you know, but there are other interesting ones, and I know you. I think you signed up for the village one. It's now called V Works. I think. Yes, I've got they're, a V Works card. Yep. Yes, the shared workspace concept. So yeah, you know, and I, I think as typical of the the backers of Village, actually uh, KSL, a private equity firm, they're very innovative and they come at things from a slightly different angle. And I think that it looks very promising. I mean, obviously, we don't get to see the real numbers, um, but it's. It, from what we hear on the ground, it's looking very good indeed. But uh, you know, I, I don't think this this hotelization of office is going to, you know, take over offices anytime soon. And I think you know we, we need to take a take a check and have a look at where where it is. I think I, some colleagues put out some numbers. And they said at the end of twenty eighteen, about one point five percent of office space in major European cities were part of this trend. Um, bigger in certain urban areas five percent in london five percent in amsterdam but still you know pretty small part of the office market um jll reckon that in the uk amongst the key cities which were about a dozen of the biggest ones in the uk they reckon flex will be more than eight point five percent by 2023 so it's growing off a fairly small base and is getting to a significant size at the end of the day the office market is big mm. and so it, it's going to be significant so i think there's going to be lots of interesting opportunities popping out here for hotel companies hotel businesses businesses and um, hospitality professionals as well mm. Right, well, on to our next topic, and this this is one for lovers of swirly patterned wallpaper and fabrics. We're going to be talking <laughs> about Laura Ashley, and uh, the Laura Ashley brand has been long promised 
as a, as a hotel brand. There's been uh, a few gentle little tries. Uh, they seem to be having more success right now uh, in the UK, growing uh, a food and beverage offering called the Laura, Laura Ashley Tea Rooms. Um, but the group has now kind of finally got round to uh, get. It seems to me to get some some traction with the uh, Laura Ashley Hotels brand, and they've particularly signed a deal with Preferred Hotels and Resorts to help grow their presence internationally. Andrew, is this the moment that Laura Ashley turns into a more than just a UK hotel brand? Well, I, what's interesting for me about this is that Laura Ashley's are dropping this obsession with distribution. They're saying, look, we're not going to be great distributors of this. That's why we're t teaming up with a representation company like Preferred. They can handle that. They've got the tech. They can do all of that bit. Um, uh, I guess cynically you might say that Laura Ashley are just going to do the curtains and cushions, but of course it's much more than that. It's it's in terms of that whole feel and ethos of 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 the hotel. And you mentioned about the tea rooms, but I think it's a huge area here where Laura Ashley can help um, if they can drive some business in these um, in 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 the F and B spaces, in particularly in regional hotels, um, particularly hotels outside of big urban areas there's been a real struggle to to get business in the in the, these properties and you usually go into them and they're you know they're very very quiet mm. and if Laura Ashley can transform that I think their licensing operation or franchising operation I think is closer to licensing yes um, it is really. I mean that's what Nick Turner the uh, the boss was telling me was uh, it's, it's a license we're going to be licensing the uh, the business yeah. yeah yeah and I think it's a it's an interesting take on the whole branding franchising piece and it, it, it's very much a pure play just in in that brand bit taking away the tech piece just in, in in the brand element itself now whether you can entirely divorce that is i think open to discussion but um certainly i think um it's an interesting move and it's going to be one to watch see how how it evolves so it's the first one of its type of scene to do this so it's it's going to be an interesting well one. i suppose you could compare it in some ways with um lvmh you know that's a there's a good good comparison i agree chris actually yeah um obviously lvmh are pushing at that sort of more luxury luxury end of the marketplace mm. um, but certainly what they're doing I mean at the moment if you look at Belmont they're very much retaining their distribution and have distribution capability as, as central to what they're offering owners but maybe yeah, maybe we'll see that divorce come in there and we'll we'll start seeing a, a, a licensing type approach just to deliver that that brand piece there um, well and I'm sure LVMH will be trying to work out how to link up people staying in the Belmont Hotel with with getting them uh, into buying some of the other luxury goods brands oh, yeah. that uh, that yeah. they have in their portfolio and it, uh, it did strike me as kind of when I was speaking with with Laura Ashley as you know if they if they have uh, experience now where they can see the tea rooms for example selling an afternoon tea so four four people sit down for an afternoon tea they've got very little change out of a hundred pounds well that's that's one transaction but actually they've got a little bit of a retail offering uh, on the on the edge of the tea rooms, so there may be some retail sales there. But they're saying the big thing for them is if if the person sitting in the tea rooms can go, well, I really like that that wallpaper or those furnishings, and they can flip their phone out and buy online some some Laura Ashley uh, materials for their own home. Um, then mm. that's a kind of great mm. experiential play, and you know if you can if you can strap those things together, make make the one feed off the other, then uh, all well and good. 
yeah, that that word experiential is the key to it, I think. Yeah. So next up, we're going to have a look at uh, the world of hostels, um, another part, another niche where there seems to be quite a lot going on. Uh, we've just had some uh, annual figures from Safe Stay, who have been accelerating at a rapid rate in Europe, and uh, look to be doing doing quite well. We're still all on tenterhooks, waiting to hear what happens. Who's going to buy Mininger, which of course is another hostel hybrid play in Europe already with quite a lot of traction but uh, Andrew finally this is a space where more people uh, more more mainstream investors are happy to get involved and as a result um, everyone seems to be dashing for market share and and a brand that can declare decent awareness yeah um, uh, there's no question that the arrival of institutional capital has transformed the hostile market um, and it's helped shift perceptions of what it is uh, five years ago we'd mentioned hostels and um, most bankers would look at you and think oh my god what on earth would you want anything to do with that that's for the homeless or, or something along along those lines but we've, we've had obviously patron come in and make a huge success with generator make a you know make a very successful exit there we've seen tpg come in um with a and o and its investment in a and o and that's been a, a very interesting push and this latest move now who's going to be buying mininger which is going to be a big big one to see because i think they've got an interesting as you said that that hybrid hotel hostel concept um i, I dug out some numbers actually from str um and they were looking at the this is performance trends and what's interesting to note with hostels is how much they track not surprisingly um, performance of hotels so the overall accommodation market they're a subset of the accommodation market but what they've really struggled with is ADR. So over the last couple of years, ADR has barely grown at all. Um, it's been a pretty tough couple of years for most hotels. But you know, two years ago, uh, if you look at the mid-market and economy hotels, this, uh, what STR showed quite clearly, you were seeing double-digit rate increases there but you weren't seeing double digit rate increases for hostels a couple of years ago now unfortunately uh budget and um or rather the economy and mid-market hotels have come down to meet hostels rather than <laughs> hostels grow to grow to meet uh, but i think that's a cyclical thing in terms of you know hopefully we're at the towards the bottom of the current cycle and um, we'll start seeing some growth and it's a question of can hostels actually start growing rates and i think for investors in this space that they need to look very carefully at the ancillary revenues not just the the rooms or beds of course we're talking about beds mm. Really yeah, yeah I was here. thinking about that. Uh, it's, it's not ADR; it's average bed rate. Yes. Yeah, which, yeah, ABR. Which uh, yeah, yeah. Safe Stay managed. <laughs> so, Safe Stay actually managed to push theirs up by five percent. Which year is year. pretty good. Yeah. That that that's above that's yeah. above the market. So yeah. that's that's a sign of a pretty pretty good operator actually. But uh, overall across the market, it, it's been pretty low. Now some of that is there's been a lot of entry in into this this space. Um, Hostel World they do an annual re report which looks at um, what's going on, and they've said that over the last ten years they're they've increase the amount of um, hostel properties they list by 173 percent which is a sign of real growth now how much with with hitting saturation i don't think that's anywhere near the case at all um but there's no 
question is getting a bit tighter in terms of in terms of rate um, but where that you can differentiate is is in bars and I think generator is a good example of a very successful um, concept which drives F&B revenues very well through its bars but also the ancillary the experiences so you sort of have people coming on and and signing up for a cooking course or a tour and all that kind of stuff selling that as part of the package is another way mm. where you can actually make pretty good margins and I think the best of these brands and concepts are going to be ones that are doing that so well yeah one of the things that struck uh, me about uh, the figures SafeStay uh, had was that they've uh, they've managed to increase food and beverage sales 43% year on year um, and they wow. now account for okay. 14% of the revenues but that was just you know that was them deciding mm. well actually we do have an opportunity here to do something within our buildings and they're, they're not trying to sub-franchise the bar to somebody else or create a different brand it's a safe stay bar it's a safe stay cafe and um and they're making good money out of them yeah yeah 14 percent seems quite low actually so they've got i think they've got plenty yeah. of room to push that yeah, um, yeah. um absolutely so uh, I, I would anticipate it being much nearer the sort of third if not 50 percent in terms of the potential for these other the other thing that about really struck me about uh safe stay and their growth was that they've kind of they're, they're mixing it in with a whole different uh number of options in terms of, of getting their new new sites on board so they've they've done some acquisitions uh, of, of existing hostels They've bought bought up a couple of hotels that they're actually going to convert to hostels, mm. um, and then they've also signed uh, down in, in just near 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 Venice quite a big um, co investment into a, a development on a, of a new site. So quite an interesting mix, a little bit of capital in there, um, but also some some capital with some quite quick returns as well. Yeah, no, undoubtedly. I mean, one of the things that all of these are sort of adjacent sectors to mainstream hotels have had to do is is have more balance sheet exposure that can be with leases. So if you look at uh, uh, something like Meininger, it's gone out and signed a lot of fixed leases, um, but also in terms of taking a, 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 either direct ownership stake or taking a slice of ownership, they've, they've got to do that. Um, that to, to get the reach and get the brand out there. There we go. That's all from us for now. We're off to pack our rucksacks and do a little bit more research for you. But meanwhile, bye for now.